Turn with me, if you will, to Acts 1, 6 through 14. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, is this the time when you will restore the kingdom of Israel? He replied, it is not for you to know the times or periods that the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. When he had said this, as they were watching, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while he was going and they were gazing up towards heaven, suddenly two men in white robes stood by them. They said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up towards heaven? This Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. When they had entered the city, they went to the room upstairs where they were staying. Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James, son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas, son of James. All these were constantly devoting themselves to prayer together with certain women, including Mary, the mother of Jesus as well as his brothers. May God add a blessing to this reading of the text and cause it to be the inspired word for us today. This morning we're picking up where we left off last week. Actually, I read part of last week's text too, because that's the way it was presented to me. So I know you thought I had messed up the scriptures, which isn't beyond the realm of comprehension, but, <laughs> but I did that on purpose. Uh, we pick up right after the ascension with uh, all these guys heading off to Jerusalem where they go into the upper room. A lot has happened in the last 40 days for these uh, disciples of Christ. Jesus came to Jerusalem after three years out on the road delivering His message of of the kingdom of God is at hand and forgiveness is yours and... Blessed are the meek and all of this. And then Jesus is arrested and crucified, which is a lot to take in on that Friday night when they sat and wondered and waited again. But then Sunday morning, the women, of course, discovered that Jesus had risen. Of course, Peter didn't believe them, so he had to go see for himself. And acknowledged that yes, Jesus indeed had risen from the dead. And now, according to Luke, had spent 40 days appearing before crowds of people, appearing before the disciples. In John, he records that they had breakfast on the beach and showing himself to everyone around him. And then for, did that for 40 days and then ascends into heaven from the Mount Olivet. And now they're left to go back to Jerusalem. They're told by Jesus, go back to Jerusalem and wait. And what they're waiting for is what the Father promised. The coming of the Holy Spirit. Which if my math is right, if it's been 40 days since Jesus' resurrection, according to Luke, then we get about 10 more days. Because... <laughs> Pentecost comes 50 days after 
Passover. So they're waiting until Pentecost. So they got about another 10 days. And if you're like me, I hate waiting. Don't you hate to wait? I think doctors are, especially for those of you who have ever had to have a test and then wait, especially if you're concerned that something, I just, I think it's a cruel thing. I, there's, I wonder if doctors could come up with some sneaky way to get the test and not let you know until they get the results and say, by the way, we snuck a test in the middle of the night and uh, you're fine. So carry on with your life or, or there's something to deal with. But I think that the waiting is almost worse than the actual news that you get i can't sometimes i can't sleep don't ever do this to me and and i'm just letting you know don't ever do this to me because it'll make me crazy i can't sleep if someone says hey pastor curtis i have something i really want to talk to you I, I i really need to tell you uh i can i see you tomorrow and i'll be like what <laughs> Well, now's a good time. Tell me what you got. You know, what is this about? Because I'll sit and worry about it. Oh, I need, I need to tell you something that's really important. I'll call you tomorrow. No, call me now. I'm, uh, don't leave me hanging like that. I seriously will not, will not be able to sleep. Yet patiently waiting seems to be one of the most sought after virtues and one that is grounded in our spirituality as a Christian. It is a Christian virtue and it is a Christian discipline to wait and to be patient. Patience is a virtue, but I don't know that it's one that necessarily comes naturally. And yet it is part of our Christian makeup, our DNA. And I think that it comes from, uh, of course, these disciples had, had to wait. And at the moment of Pentecost, they were waiting for that Holy Spirit to come and dwell within their hearts, patiently waiting as Jesus instructed them to. But the original readers of this text, whom Luke was addressing, they were waiting for something too. They were waiting for the parousia, the second coming of Jesus And they were waiting patiently for that, although they were starting to get a little impatient. Which is why we hear Jesus saying to them right now, it is not your business to know the time and the place and when all these things will happen. It is your business to be my witnesses. I think Luke emphasized those words of Jesus here in in this story in Acts in order to remind those original readers, those who first read this story, that they may be waiting for a long time for the second coming of Jesus and to not get too hung up on that. And of course, they ultimately come to a place where they had to deal with the fact that Jesus wasn't coming back soon. And yet the church continues to live in the expectation of Jesus' return and has, for 2,000 years, we've waited and we've wondered, when is Jesus coming? And some today make this their obsession, which is not very good. This has not helped the cause of Christ, I don't think, when people have become so obsessed with this and spend all of their time trying to decode Revelation and Isaiah and try to determine the day and the time when Jesus is going to come again. And God help them when they actually come up with a date and a time and they start selling all of their stuff. It doesn't look good. when, And I feel so bad. That morning when Harold Camping was still here and wasn't raptured, 
honest to goodness, I, I felt so bad for the guy. I just felt so bad for him that, uh, that he had put all of his faith in that stack of cards, that house of cards, based on that day and that time. What a weak faith that is that comes tumbling down when it doesn't happen. Some make it their obsession, and that's not a very good thing. However, even someone like myself, a uh, uh, you know, liberal, skeptic uh, Christian in the world who likes realistic ideas and realism, even I am loath to let go of the anticipation of Christ's return. Because we as followers of Christ, we're always living in the tension of being in the here and now and anticipating the yet to come. And by hanging on to this idea that, that somewhere down the line, Jesus is going to bring things to completion. It, it is uh, uh, somewhere for me to hang my hat of hope, as it were. And it gives me that, it gives me that life of living in the yet to come. To be able to say, I am living here and now grounded in the reality of today and I'm living out the kingdom of God and the world I live in today, but I live in the expectation and the hope that someday things will be brought to completion. And so for me as a Christian, I hang on to the language of Jesus' second coming in order to articulate all of that. I don't know what that's going to look like. I don't know when it's going to happen. I don't know what. I don't know. There's a lot I don't know. But for me, I articulate it. I, I see it through the lens of the metaphor, if you will, of Jesus' second coming. And it gives me some language to wrap my hope around. And so, I think it's a good thing. Because it does encourage us to wait as these, as these disciples waited. Both men and women waited for that which Jesus promised waited for something to happen, waited together in that upper room, waited in prayer, waited in anticipation without knowing what was going to happen next. And yet they knew what they were waiting for, the promise to be fulfilled. And I believe that this waiting was not without purpose. As we look at the story here today, we can see that there are blessings to be had in their waiting. First of all, one of the great things is these guys had each other. Right? There's a, and this is one of the few lists of the disciples we have here. And Peter and John and James, Andrew, Philip and Thomas, all of these guys, many of them were fishermen and they, they had each other and, and had... But for three years, all they really knew was that they had this link to this person, Jesus. Jesus was their complete focus. And maybe they got to know each other a little bit. Maybe they didn't. But now they were left with one another without that, that link, that person that had kept them together. So what was going to happen now? Now, they still had Jesus to focus on, yet they were dealing with one another. I'm sure it was awkward at times, up in that upper room, everyone sitting around waiting. I think uh, all the fishermen probably had inside jokes that everyone didn't get, right? That only fishermen got, right? Fish jokes, I suppose. 
And I think, you know, Andrew, Andrew introduced half of the disciples to Jesus. And I'm sure, Je- I'm sure Andrew was helping people get to know each other. Hey, uh, Simon, do you know Matthew? Matthew, Simon, if you guys... He, Matthew enjoys, uh, uh, you know, building things. <laughs> Maybe you guys have something in common. I'm sure Andrew was kind of the, the cruise director around those things. I think the, the most fascinating pair for me in this whole list, and you've heard me talk about this before, is Simon the Zealot and Matthew the tax collector. I th- I'm fascinated. I wish the Bible said more about these two guys. Because here's the reality... First of all, Matthew was a tax collector. There is nothing lower on earth than a tax collector. And I don't know that much has changed, has it? But (laughs) there there is nothing lower in the first century Palestine than a tax collector. Why? Because a tax collector, in order to become a tax collector, basically traded their loyalty to their own people, the Jewish people, because all the tax collectors were Jewish. They traded their loyalty to the Jewish people for their loyalty to Rome so that they could get paid. And not only that, but they took, the way they got paid is they they overcharged the taxes, the tribute that was supposed to go to Caesar. So they had to collect a tribute that went to Caesar, they collected a tribute that went to Herod, and then they got to charge a little bit extra, or a lot extra, for themselves. And this was enforced usually by two very large thugs that stood behind them at the tax collection table, and Lord help you if he had to send them to your house. Right? So these were low, low people. Matthew, was a, they were corroborators. And Matthew was one of them. Simon the Zealot, and all we know is his name, Simon the Zealot was a terrorist who went around killing collaborators like Matthew. They saw their job as the overthrow and the undermining of Rome. And they did it by being terrorists. They would they would sabotage tax collection booths. They would sabotage supply trains. And they would kill collaborators with Rome. And if they were really lucky, they would get a Roman on their own alone and they would kill him too. These were terrorists. If they had bombs, they would explode bombs around. But they didn't have them back then. But it's the exact same thing. So Simon the Zealot... And Matthew, the tax collector. What do you suppose they talked about? Huh? That's crazy. I, I, I just, I'm fascinated that Jesus was able to bring these two people together. And here they were without Jesus to mediate between them. And I just have to wonder. It kind of reminds me. I wonder, I bet they became, maybe they became best friends. I, my, my best friend... One of my best friends in the world, Rick Reese, who's the son of the pastor at Ogden when I was growing up, he was an, he was an idiot. He was a jock. He was one of those jock, but he was, he was a jock who liked to pick on, you know, little nerds like me, right? And I was kind of a drama geek kind of guy, had absolutely nothing in common with this guy. He was, he was a total jerk. In fact, there was one time we were at an event at Clearfield Community Church, a youth event, and he and I were just started out messing around. We were kind of wrestling around, and then, and then it kind of got serious, like we were getting ready to throw fists. 
And bless her heart, Donna Martin filled up a bucket of water and came and threw it on us both <laughs> to break us up. That's how, that's how much we really did not like each other. He hated me. I hated him. And then we each got a summer job at Camp Utaba. There were two positions open. I took one. He filled the other one. And we had to live in a cabin together all summer long, sleeping three feet from each other, right? Our hands touched in the middle of the night sometimes. <laughs> and if you don't think those first few days were tense and awkward, but then we started talking. We started talking about music. We started talking about girls. <laughs> we discovered that we had a few things in common, not the least of which was our devotion to Christ and our devotion to that camp and our love for what Jesus was to each of us. And we learned to appreciate each other. I was best man at his wedding. We've been lifelong friends. I call him you know, once or twice a month or so. And we're still friends. And it's an amazing thing how Jesus can transcend our differences. And I imagine that, it, that getting to know one another in a new way was part of what was going on in that upper room as they waited and they pulled together and they got to know one another and realized that what they had as they waited was each other. Uh, They also um, did this wonderful thing. They prayed. They prayed. They sat together and they devoted themselves to praying and waited This is a wonderful practice of patience. It's something not just to kill the time, but it helps us focus our patience on the things that God wants us to do. Sometimes when it feels like there's nothing else to do, when things feel completely out of our... What a gift prayer is. When when things feel completely out of our control. Are you sick? Are you hurting? Is someone you love dying are you concerned about someone who's away and you can't help them are you concerned about circumstances in your life that are completely out of your control and yet we can do something we can pray and we can ask others to pray with and for us what an incredible gift we're never left with absolutely nothing we can do or things being completely out of our control because we can pray. Amen? Amen. We always have that there for us as a gift. The other thing is they knew what they were waiting for. You know, sometimes waiting can be an excuse for doing nothing, right? Or not, you know, and relinquishing our responsibility. Well, I'm you know, uh, why don't you feed these poor that are sitting here? Well, I'm waiting for the leading of the, of the Lord for that. I'm not going to do anything until Jesus tells me. Really, I think Jesus is speaking right here. Uh, it can become this, this, uh, this excuse, generic sitting around waiting for God to do something. I don't know is very helpful. These disciples were waiting for something very specific. They were waiting for the promised Holy Spirit. And they received it on Pentecost. In our own discernment process, 
It is often important for us to wait, but then to know what we're waiting for. Right? If we are trying to make a decision and we're waiting for some kind of inspiration, that's fine. Uh, in our own, it's, it's important to know that. Promptings, answers, guidance, confirmation, signs even are worth waiting for. And yet, not in such a way that it becomes an excuse for just not doing anything. Right? Sometimes our waiting takes action nonetheless. Their faith of course, was deepened by the weight. And I suppose that's the, that's the key, is your faith deepened by the weight. They trusted Jesus. They waited as they were prompted to do so for what was promised. They received that promise. And so their doubts went away for the time being. And I think this is, this is how it works for us too. The more experience we have of waiting for God to show up, and then God shows up, the easier it becomes for us to wait in that expectation of God the next time. This is how God promotes patience among Christ's followers. God puts us in situations that require patience and waiting. But then, when we have that experience of the waiting paying off, of God showing up, of Jesus revealing God's self to us, of answers coming, of promptings, of that sense of conviction that says, move now. Man, there's nothing like it. And then it becomes so much easier the next time we're stuck in a situation of waiting. So what a blessing it is to have our faith deepened by the waiting. If you're like me, the waiting is like torture so much of the time. And yet it is a spiritual discipline as important as any other spiritual discipline. As important as praying or reading the Bible, being able to wait, sometimes passively, Sometimes actively working toward that which we are waiting for. But always living, not only in the here and now, but in the hope of what is yet to come. So I encourage us all to see our moments of waiting as opportunities to grow toward God. To experience a deepened faith. To look around and see who's your ally in waiting. And to pray with them, for them, and for yourself as we wait patiently on on God's coming. Let us pray. Great and mighty God, we thank You for the gift of patience when it comes. Help us when we find ourselves struggling to be patient and to wait, that we might glorify You in our patience. We thank You for all that You are and all that You have been and all that You will be. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen.